It's time for the What in the Podcast. If you ever plan to motor west, travel my way, take the highway that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. While we get our kicks this way. Welcome to episode 105 of What in the Podcast. Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington and Adriana Camito and Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Hello and welcome to the What in the Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Hi. Don't choke, Tracy. It's not your time to die. It's not a good day to die. Today is not a good day to die. But it is a good time to break Tracy like we've been doing just before the podcast for like the last hour. (laughs) And it doesn't help that I have. Recovery from the stupid cold of doom. Not COVID. It's the cold of doom. Mm-hmm. But, however, we are well fed. I barbecued tonight. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, everybody, everybody seemed to like what I cooked, so it was all good. Yeah. You barbecued. I love it. I but you said on the butter shirt. And it smells so good. I love the smell of barbecue. But not so much lung butter. No, not lung butter. What in the morning? <laughs> I love the smell of barbecue. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. No? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Hi, my name's Tracy. I'm a channel server. So how was your week, Tracy? Now, before I, before you answer that, I just want to let people know that, yes, we have been off for the last two weeks. Um, and this is going to likely be a regular thing from here on in. Uh, the whole reason being is because we do have two other podcasts besides this one that we are trying to put together as a cohesive whole. And that's been difficult doing this particular podcast every week. So we're going to knock it down to every two weeks and allow Tracy and Adri to host their podcasts. The Who in the Podcast and the Why in the Podcast, respectively. And hopes and prayers will work out nicely. And for people who didn't hear last week, we did record an episode of Who in the Podcast. What do we call that one? Florida Man. Florida Man. Yes. <laughs> Yes, all all those little funny memes that you see about Florida Man on the internet. Well, we covered some of those stories. There's also one that our friend posted, which set us off. It was called it was Alabama Man. And you did have an Alabama Man story to tell. Yes, you want to tell them what the headline was for that? Alabama Man, woman stabs husband with squirrel. <laughs> we thought it was a Florida Man thing. Turns out it was an Alabama Man, and the newspaper didn't put it in the title. Florida Man or or man or wife. Alabama man, not Florida man. It was no, it was just (laughs) a wife stabs husband with squirrel. Should have said wife stabs husband with porcelain squirrel. (laughs) Yeah, but that wouldn't have been as funny. Yeah, no, no. but it was pretty funny. Yeah, so admit that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, (laughs) um, we also have. uh, Hi, I'm Jessa. Jessa, yes, (laughs) hi Jessa. I I I know several people who would disagree with the ownership claim there, but. (laughs) You've, you've had me longer, so... The only one that has ownership claim on you is well, your mom she, and your dad. That means she does have a legitimate claim, though. I, 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 can we not bring my dad into this? 
Okay, but you got my point there. They, they, yeah. they were, do your not, dad was there for the conception of you. We so you do know. not believe in swearing on this show. We do not. That's <laughs> right. This is a family-friendly show. We don't swear. Uh, sorry. We might exaggerate the truth, but we don't swear. <laughs> I, I, I promise not to swear. You are, Do you swear not to swear? <laughs> don't swear. No. <laughs> Did that hurt? No, I was self-editing. It looked like you bopped yourself in the nose really hard. From my perspective, it looked like she was about to sneeze. Yeah. For a second, I thought she was jabbing you. Uh, I was I trying not to say that word. You swear? Word. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway. Um, you asked how my week was? Yes, how was your week? I've been struck down by a cold, thanks to... A five-year-old in school, because that's what walking, talking petri dishes do. Yes, they give you the dread mahungi. Yes. Yes. And it has slowly crept its way through the house, but I am no longer ill. I just have that wonderful drip, drip, drip. Oh, so oh, heck, my coughing that you hear is not, what, what the hell was his name? Snedley. Snively Whiplash's pet Muttley. Yes. Sorry. It's just me slowly dying of a foamy death of. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. It does yeah. kind of sound like Muttley, yeah. Yeah. And I, I realized that at like two o'clock in the morning, I'm like hacking up a lung wing. At least I sound like a cartoon dog. Yeah. I looked on Facebook and I'm like, <laughs> Tracy was up seven minutes ago. I'm like, oh, she's not sleeping again. <laughs> I guess she's really sick then. Yes. Oh, well, no, last was night was, was dealing with the sounds of, of the ringing in my ears and the inability to sleep because they're ringing in my ears and the fixation on sound. So the music that repeated after 90 seconds was obnoxious. The music that repeated after 45 seconds needing a steamroller to smooth it out for the repeat was extra obnoxious. And I finally found one that was nice and calming, but then I couldn't sleep because I was awake and hungry. I hate that. Mm -hmm. That's bad. Pain, yep. me, I swear. Mm -hmm. um, liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> so our last episode, we talked about... I've lost my train of thought. How about that? We were man. Canada man, you're right. Sorry. It was Alabama man. And then we're talking about Florida. Not your podcast, my podcast. Which one? Was what? at Bethany House. Yes, it was at Bethany House. It was for Halloween. Yes, it was our Halloween episode. We That's right. We were talking about true Halloween stories. Yeah. But I wanted I'm watching Tracy point to an imaginary place in our living room. It's, not it's over there. That way. It's actually that way, yes. <laughs> You're pointing the wrong way. It's over here. So for me, everything is to the left. It doesn't matter if it's behind me, forward, or around. It's always to the left. Yeah. Makes sense because okay. I pointed the left also, but I was pointing a different left than your left. Yes. But the reason I wanted to bring that up is I wanted to ask you, Tracy, you did some recording of your own. I did. And I wanted to find out if you found anything. I have not been able to listen to it because every time I turn it on, someone starts talking, the dogs start barking, the house goes. My house has been not just person active, but the, the, the critters, the past critters in the house have been active. Past and present, huh? Past and, well, yeah. So Zog's yelling at my door at two o'clock in the morning. On good nights, not last night. Last night she actually <laughs> shut up for a bit. It was amazing. But she's weird. But I've been hearing the revving of engines. And by revving of engines, I mean that you can hear the claws tear down the carpet in the hall. But it's a different carpet than we have. And you can hear the go up and across the, the curtain rod and speed, then back down again. Speed demon. Well, it's, it's 
my grandparents had a cat. I believe it's Butch that would start out under grandpa's bed, which is the bedroom down the hall, like directly down the hall. You'd hear her little claws and she'd zoom down the hall and up the curtain rod and across the curtain rod and down and back down the hall again, and slide into grandpa's bed or under the bed and against the wall. And I know that the door is closed in the room because Harlow's asleep. And you'd hear, and I'm like, that's the carpet, and that's the cat, and that's the cat, and that's the cat. And then, whew, that cat's been dead for 60 years. Okay, cool. And then we've had other oh, that cat. sounds around <laughs> that have been. Oh, I, I knew what she was talking about. So did I. So, so I just thought I'd say, oh, that cat. Oh. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, it's it's been. Every time it gets quiet in my house, it gets active again. So, although this Saturday I am back in my cave of sewing, and I can put it on loud and listen in quiet and just go, okay, note if there's a sigh again or anything, because in my cave of sewing, my last weekend. Just activate the cone of silence, and you're all set to mm -hmm. go. Yes, awesome. So tonight we are going to talk about something near and dear to Adri's heart because she always wanted to travel this road. Which road is that, dear? Route 66. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to do it. Yep. And why do you want to do it? Before it disappears completely. I knew you were going to say that. I always say that. It's yep. disappearing. It's going away fast because of all the other freeways and highways that have been built. Route 66 was the original to Southern California to, um, okay, brain's not working. Um, <laughs> To the East Coast. West Coast to East Coast. West Coast yeah. to East Coast. It runs, it runs the and old, it was the, the only way to get. Yep. And, and back when, in, in the 60s, it was like, it's car, car travel. So they got, you know, all these places like popped up and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, yep. tourist attraction this and, you know, places to sleep like the TP Motel. Yep. Yep. Um, like that. That's the only one that comes to mind. The mm -hmm. largest ball of string. How about the tic-tac-toe playing chicken? I think that was on Route 66 too. Yeah, I think. Not anymore. But I mean, the, or, and the headless chicken. There was the headless chicken yeah. Yeah, that could, drowned you, eventually. You, know, you could yeah. see him for a dime or a dollar. I don't, I don't remember, know. but <laughs> eventually it drowned. It was a chicken without a head, mm -hmm. and it survived because the cerebellum was still attached to the mm -hmm. chicken. Yep. And he was fed through an eyedropper. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Jessa here has uh, actually traveled Route 66. No, no real stops or anything, but you saw things along the way. Uh, very little. I mean, I. I keep okay. I would. I I did. I did two days from San Francisco Bay Area to uh, Houston, Texas. So, so you only went halfway. And how long ago was this? Uh, that was um, about a month ago. Oh, I mean, had you done it before, like prior to that? Um, a, a long time ago. Um, back um, in high school, uh, mom and I took a couple of road trips cross country. If you recall, you might not recall. I don't know how much depends it on which to time do. your mom was letting us spend time together or not. Um, <laughs> it's the truth. They have it's, a sorted past together. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I I I caused my lovely sister quite a lot of trauma over the years. Oh um, please. Oh. And and that's not the way I heard it. <laughs> and well, <laughs> we did right. each. We we both had our own moments. Mm -hmm. Trust me. Yeah. Well, my, my mom always blamed her because I was the cute, sweet, innocent one. Uh, that's why sure to your mother. So <laughs> to your so mother, long. yeah. Uh, no, to a lot of people, a lot of people, I was the cute, sweet, innocent one. There are still people that are surprised about. Well, I did about see her high school photo after all. Yeah, yeah actually, I, that I wasn't a high that. school photo. That was 
I don't want to say it out loud in case he hears this. It was a photo. We'll it was it a photo that. that made her look very adult. Yeah, we'll I, just leave it at that. Yeah, I was I was not very fair adult enough. There. Fair enough. Um, but it's not for this show. <laughs> Maybe that's my show. That's right. That's your show. <laughs> but uh, <coughs> do you um, need tissues or anything? I have said for a long time that a being a cute girl lets you get a lot away with a lot of stuff. She does still that, look very innocent. So. That well, it's practice. Trust me. I, <laughs> I I I practice in front of a mirror. I really really do. Okay, you've always looked that adorable. <laughs> cute. Yeah. She she fiddles her ear. Thank you, bow. Thank you, bow. Yeah. Yeah. Free drinks, free drinks. Anyway. <laughs> I will not trust free drinks from anybody in this day and age. And I'm such a lightweight. And you get roofied. Oh, I'm a lightweight again. I don't drink, so. You heard it here, folks. I used to be. I drank our <laughs> Persian apartment manager under the table with the tequila shots. I paid for it later, but I did it. <laughs> That's true. That's a whole but, different story, though. Anyway, my Route 66 was was mostly <laughs> at night, very, very quickly. I saw things like, you know, every little every little shop along the way has got authentic Route 66 bookstore or authentic Route 66 cafe um, in their title sign, whatever. But I didn't have time to stop at any of them. Now, did you ever see an authentic Route 66 ghost? Uh, would I have recognized it going that fast? <laughs> Chances are you may not even recognize it as a ghost. If Might it's not. walking the route, you is couldn't it, tell if it was alive or not, maybe. There were a lot of people, and I didn't stop for any of them. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot. I yes, didn't run was. anybody over. <laughs> well, something else I want to mention, like Adri said, um, the reason we bring up Route 66 is because it is in jeopardy of being destroyed. It already um, it's, is. It's not, it's not it's very well maintained anymore. It's been piecemealed. But um, there is, I want to bring it because there is a website called Scenic America, who I got some information from for tonight's podcast. And uh, they are actually, a, they formed a conservation society for Route 66. They're yeah. trying to restore it. I think it's a good. I think it's a great idea because you got historical preservation for you know every in every town and state across the country, um, and in other countries. Why why not try and preserve this? This is history. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, when the, you take your kids in the summer, you put them in the car and you travel and you mm -hmm. stay at this motel or that motel and let the kids play in the pool or whatever, and then you go see the weird little attractions along the way. Go. My mom talks Cross about country. going from here to the Mojave Desert, going from Big Orange to Big Orange to Big Orange, because that's what you did yep. in the 50s. So yeah. anyway, listeners, if you are interested in uh, donating to this particular cause, I just wanted to bring it up. Um, go to uh, scenic.org. Take a look at their page and look at their principles of, con their principles of conservation. Sorry. And look what they've accomplished, and you have the option also to sign up for their newsletter there at the site and become a contributor. Dun, dun, dun. So, yeah. <laughs> Having said that, let's get into it. Now, I did compile a few stories thanks to uh, to uh, Kathy Weisler from Legends of America at legendsofamerica.com and scenic.org. And let's just get into it. Uh, since the late 1920s, droves of Americans have been getting their kicks on Route 66, 
traversing eight states in three different time zones. The historic highway has long captured the imagination of the American traveler and the essence of the American road trip. U.S. Route 66, or U.S. 66, was established in 1926 and became the first all-weather highway connecting the major cities of Chicago and Los Angeles. The shortest year-round linking the Midwest and the Pacific Coast, Route 66 was a bustling artery that gave small towns access to cross-country highway. During the Dust Bowl, an estimated 210,000 people migrated to California in a bid to escape financial hardship. Old Route 66, as it's sometimes known, was also a means for farmers to sell their crops in more places. And for, for oh, sorry guys, <laughs> tripped <laughs> up there. <laughs> and for truckers to find safe transportation even in the winter months. Later on, as the U.S. joined the fray in the Second World War, Route 66 became a go-to path for the rush of military supplies and personnel to bases in the West. When the war ended, the significance of Route 66 did not. The automobile took its place as a pillar of the American lifestyle, and the open road and Route 66 came to symbolize freedom, optimism, and individualism. Although the route was decommissioned in 1985, it's not, it's not, boy, I cannot say Synony that word. Thank Synonymous. You. No, synonymity. Synonymity. Yeah. That's the word. Sorry. Where's that? It's synonymity. Cinnamon rolls. Okay. <laughs> it's Sorry. cinnamon with American culture. <laughs> Historic Route 66, an obvious choice for preservation. In 1990, Congress passed the Route 66 Study Act of 1990, finding that historic Route 66 had become a symbol of the American people's heritage of travel and their legacy of seeking a better life. Consequently, the Route 66 Corridor Preservation Program was created in 1999, and the route itself was designated an all-American road. Now, why is Route 66 famous? This rich and long-standing history accounts for much of historic Route 66 fame. However, travelers are also drawn in by the unique places featured along the way. Many tourist visitors stay in the route's iconic roadside motels. Among the most famous are Wigwam Motel, <laughs> with its TV-inspired design, and Blue Shallow Motel, Swallow, sorry, Swallow. Blue Swallow Motel, with its pink stucco walls and legendary hospitality. Both are listed in the National Register of Historic Places. Route 66 also offers quirky roadside attractions you won't find anywhere else. Elmer's Bottle Tree Ranch, for example, is an art installation of more than 200 trees, in quotes it says, made of colored glass bottles. The notable Easter Island-inspired Giganticus Hedicus statue is also a popular attraction. The, uh, these and other unusual sites ensure that historic Route 66 spirit of individualism lives on in the modern day. Along with all the roadside attractions, Route 66 is also littered with legends and tales, some of which take on a ghostly nature. Along our travels on the historic Mother Road, uh, we managed to bump into a fair share of haunted hotels, ghosts lurking in restaurants, and a few that just seemed to like to take a, a leisurely walk down old Route 66. So what we're going to do tonight, this list is real long. So we're going to break this up in probably a couple different episodes, which is kind of ironic considering we're just going to two weeks at this point. <laughs> so you'll have to wait a while for the next episode. Sorry, um, guys. We could do it in two weeks. Two weeks after that. Two weeks after that. So it's all come together. And the Yours is an next week. And we'll be in Chicago before you know it. 
<laughs> you take power, I'll take love. Anyway. Get you a kick. <laughs> walk to Sixty-six. Than that. There we go. Yes, yes. We so can. we're going to start with our home state, California, on the west coast. It's our starting point on the on the on the road. Yep. Um, who would like to tell the first little tidbit about the haunted ghosts of uh, Route Sixty-Six? I, I do it. Okay. So the first place we're stopping at or starting at is Calico, California. And three miles north of Interstate I, uh, Interstate 15, midway between Barstow and Yermo, and I've been there, California sits this historic and registered, or sorry, restored ghost town of Calico, California. It all began in 1875 when roving prospectors first found silver on the south slope of the Calico Mountains. However, it wasn't until some five years later that an additional ore discoveries worth $400 to $500 per ton, brought a small rush and the filling of many, sorry, filing of many claims. In the spring of 1881 came the discovery of the Silver King, Calico's richest mines. Less than a year later, a new settlement supported several businesses on a commercial street flanked by tents and adobe buildings on a narrow mesa between Wall Street Canyon and Odessa Canyon. It took its name from the myriad of colors in the mountains, which were the backdrop to the town. The weekly Calico print appeared in October 1882. The local stamp mill was built to begin working ores. But the spring of 1883, many of the local miners left Calico when borax was discovered three miles east of Borate. Later the same year, fire destroyed much of the camp, but Calico again boomed in 1884 as the silver discoveries were made, gaining, uh, were made again, gaining population to some 2,500 people. The town supported two, uh, two dozen saloons, gambling dives that never closed, as well as more legitimate establishments, such as a church, public school, dance school, a literary uh, society, along with dozens of retail businesses. After 1884, many of the mines consolidated. In late 1888, the Oro Grand Mining Company erected an even larger camp, uh, camp mill for $250,000 on the north bank of the Mojave River. Soon it connected the still the map stamp mill stamp mill near Daggett. I know where this all is. Uh, to the silver silver king mine, and by the ten mile narrow gauge Calico Railroad. By the late 1800s, Calico was busting sorry bustling with prospectors searching for their fortunes, and the Calico mining district became one of the richest in the state. I'm sorry, I tripped over my tongue. It's okay, so did I. It's all good. <laughs> During its heyday, <clears throat> the district would produce $86 million in silver, $45 million in borax. However, when the price of silver dropped from $1.31 an ounce to $0.63 cents during the mid-1890s, Calico became a ghost of its former self. The narrow-gauge Calico Railroad was dismantled just under the turn of the century. The town officially died in 1907 with the end of the borax mining in the district. Around 1917, a cyanide plant was built in Calico recovering values from the Silver King mine dumps, and the town was revived. However, by 1935, the town was entirely abandoned and left to Mother Nature's elements in the Mojave Desert. Revival and Restoration In the 1950s, Knott's Berry Farm in Buena Park bought the town site and began restorations. Its owner, Walter Knott, spent much time in Calico as a boy, and his uncle, as his uncle had lived there. He even helped build a silver mill in Calico at the time of World War I. Not spent time there, no doubt, influenced by his decision uh, to, to, I can talk this again. Not's time there, no doubt, influenced his decision to buy the town and restore it. Dyslexia is fun. Isn't it though? 
one of the rebuilt attractions in this mile short line of Calico and Odessa Railroad that loops through the steep canyons and hills past old mines and buildings in North Calico. Throughout the original town site, sorry, through the original town site has been, that's not through either. Though, there we go. The original town site has been mostly rebuilt by new and restored buildings. One third of the town is original. The remaining newer buildings were carefully reconstructed to create, to recreate the spirit of Calico's old west past. In November 1966, Knott donated Calico to San Bernardino County, and Calico now operates as one of the many San Bernardino County regional parks. Though Calico is no longer a crumbling ghost town thanks to Walter Knott, it most definitely gives a visitor a feel of what life might have been during those old mining days. Falls front doors and saloons towered by, cra by craggy mountains above, overlooking the desert valley below, provide an otherwise unobtainable glimpse to Calico's rich history. Today, walking tours are available with Calico historians who examine the life of the miners during the heyday. The narrow gauge railroad operates within the town limits. The hard rock, the hard silver, mm -hmm. the hard rock silver mine provides underground exploration. Buildings such as the schoolhouse and blacksmith shop saloons can be explored, as well as live gold panning operation. Calico Townside is open daily from 8 a.m. till dusk, featuring numerous shops and restaurants and other attractions. In the canyons below town, a full-service campground, camping cabins, bunkhouse, provide the opportunity for standard stays. It's a reasonable admission price, and the prices inside the town of the restaurants additional attractions make it one of California's best tourist values. If Calico's rich history and meticulous restoration and gunfights aren't enough to, to entertain you, there's more. Allegedly, this, this town is haunted by several lingering spirits. Not the clown, but that's okay. Ghosts of Calico. One of the most often cited spirits is that of Lucy Bell King Lane, a woman who spent nearly 70 years of her life in Calico. When Lucy was just 10 years old, she moved with her parents, two brothers, and a sister to nearby Bismarck, which overlooked the town of Calico. To get to school, Lucy would have had to slide down the steep slope in the morning and make the long trail hike up at the hill afterwards. When she was 18 years old, she married John Robert Lane. At the two opened general store that provided not only provisions to the mining population, but also cloth, nails, and hardware. They prospered briefly, but when the silver market began to decline, the couple left Calico in 1899. I'm talking. However, the couple returned in 1916, making their old store their home. Four years later, they moved into the old courthouse and, port and post office building. Her husband, John, died in 1934, but Lucy would continue to live a long life staying in the same house until she died in 1967 at the age of 93. Today, their old home has become a museum that exhibits the life the Lanes lived, as well as a collection of mining materials and photographs, Native American displays from the time before Calico silver deposits were discovered. Though Lucy died decades ago, she was evidently fond of her old hometown, as she frequently still decided there. Most often, she's been seen walking their old store in the home that she lived in until her death. When she's sighted, she's described as wearing long black dress, most likely the very lace one she was buried in. Her favorite rocking chair has also been said to rock on its own, and often pictures are taken of the wall at night, only to be found the next morning in a neat pile on the floor. So all the pictures taken off and stacked nice and neat on the floor. At the Lane's old store, clerks have often heard unexplainable noises and catch movement out of the corners of their eyes, which they attribute to Lucy. The Lane house has the longest occupied original structure in Calico. But favorite resident Lucy Lane is not the only phantom that lurks in Calico. 
At the very same schoolhouse sitting atop the hill in Calico, some people reported seeing a girl about 11 or 12 years old, most often smiling through a window. Sometimes she even leans out and waves at passersby. Others have allegedly seen a phantom school teachers, sorry, seen the phantom school teachers and other small child who's been known to grab people's legs or pinch their ankles. Some visitors have reported seeing a floating red light inside the school. But most incredible stories is the one of two British tourists who reported having a long visit with a staff person in a period costume. Who explained to them that this was the last teacher in Calico. As they're ready to leave, they have pictures taken with the self-proclaimed teacher. The schoolmistress in Calico was Margaret Oliver, who passed away in 1932. He's buried at the Calico Cemetery. When the couple returned home and got their pictures developed, they were amazed to see that the staff member didn't appear in any of the photographs. Later, they found that there had been no staff members working the schoolhouse during their visit. Dun, dun, dun. <coughs> Pardon me. Though the hills surrounding Calico once held dozens of mines, the many pits and ruins continue, uh, continue to attest this. Calico features the mag, uh, the Maggie Lane. Maggie Mine. Maggie Mine, sorry. Uh, which once produced some $13 million in silver ore. And now its tunnels can be explored by visitors. In the thousand feet of tunnels that are open to the public, it should come as no surprise that many believe that spirits lurk in the mine's depths. Several visitors have reported extreme cold spots throughout the mine and feelings of one's hair standing up in various places. But most particularly, there were two miners known as the Mulcahy brothers who made their home in the mine. Though portions of the mine were blocked off behind gates, macabre mannequins added a spooky feeling in the mine. Near the Maggie mine is, is Hank's Hotel, which once belonged to an angry old cowboy whose spirit allegedly once punched a man in the leg who was standing on his fence, but more commonly, people reported something tugging on their wrists, hands, and clothing along the boardwalk in front of the hotel. These antics, however, have not been generally blamed on the angry old cowboy, but rather a four- or five-year-old boy who has been seen roaming the boardwalk and surrounding area. Also said to haunt Calico's boardwalks on Main Street is that of the Marshal Tumbleweed Harris. Several visitors are described seeing a big man with a white beard, which fits the description of the man who kept the peace in Calexico for seven years. Calexico. Sorry, Calico. Oh, where, where are we again? <laughs> Isn't that in Texas? <laughs> no, Calexico is um Cali, Mexico border. Yeah. I put it further south because you know how I am blonde. My name's Tracy. She's still in California, just a little further south than she was before. <laughs> We're not it's talking to the left. Calexico. Every <laughs> point left. <laughs> Do you have water? <coughs> Coughing. Just remember, I'm Tracy, anyway, two wrongs don't make a right, but three rights make a left. <laughs> get there eventually. Yep. Anyway, continue. Sorry. Sorry. At the Calico Corral, some people have often heard the voices of crowds and celebrations coming from the barn that once hosted regular Sunday night dances. Sorry, Saturday night dances. At Lil' Saloon, one of the Calico's original buildings, sounds of an old-style piano and rowdy crowds have been heard when no one was in the building. Employees have also often reported hearing a jingle of spurs and other noises that can't be explained. Another, ast uh, another spectral lady, not astral lady, in a long white dress has been frequently seen walking near the outskirts of the, ghost, uh, of the old ghost town at the building that once housed the town theater, which is now the R&D Fossils and Minerals Shop. Another female ghost named Esmeralda has allegedly taken up residence. And finally, Calico... Had, un had another famous resident, that of, of Dorsey, the male-carrying dog. 
Dorsey was found in 1883 by postmaster Jim Stacy when the hungry and footsore black and white shepherd was lying on his porch. Stacy quickly adopted him, and Dorsey became a faithful friend. In addition to the postmaster duties, Stacy was interested in, in the mine near in nearby Bismarck. On one occasion, when Stacy needed to get an urgent message to his partner at the mine, he tied a note to Dorsey's neck and sent him up there. Before long, Dorsey returned with a reply. Dorsey was soon carrying messages back and forth to the mine frequently. Then, one Stacy had an idea to make this dog a regular mail carrier. Soon, the dog was carrying the mail from Calico to Bismarck, bearing his load in little pouches strapped to his back. For three years, Dorsey covered the mail route between the two camps and became so valuable that Stacy was offered $500 for the dog, to which Stacy replied her brother Saul, a grandson. Dorsey's legend was revived in 1972, uh, album entitled the Ballad, the Ballad of Calico by Kenny Rogers. The song called Dorsey, the Mail Carrying Dog. And of course, in Haunted Calico, he's been revived in another way, the Spectral Dog. On several occasions, Dorsey has been the, seen as a shadow-like apparition in the cemetery and near the print shop. It stands for the original, original location for the post office. Unless you see it sit on Hank's fence, it appears that none of the ghosts in Calico are malevolent. So don't get, so don't let them stop you from visiting this great old ghost town. <laughs> so you said you've been to Calico. I've been by Calico. So as they're talking about the areas, I've been by the Borax Mines. Just recently, even. Because mm -hmm. when I drove back in from Lost Wages, I mean, sorry, Las Vegas, same difference. Potato, potato. I, I was like, you know, I'll look over going, well, that's where the Borax mines are, and this is where this is. So I've been literally in the area they're talking about at that junction of, of I-15 and going up. So, yeah. Hmm. And I got to see it with the sun still relatively up. But it wasn't Calexico when you went there, right? No, it wasn't Calexico okay. when I went there. <laughs> I have not been that far south. But I do know... As, as part of, of, of a tangent that ties in the Knotts farm, uh -huh. so the Knotts family. My great aunt, who has since passed away many moons ago, lived behind Knotts Berry Farm, but knew the Knotts as she was growing up, going back and forth uh, with her, or sorry, I shouldn't say great, when she was mom to her kids, and when my parents, when my mom and uncle would go to Boron on a Right. Summerly basis. So when her kids weren't weren't in Boron dune surfing in the back of a station wagon, cracking kids on their foreheads, things like that. You know, anywho, <laughs> family had fun. Um, when they were in school, they spent time with the Knotts family. Okay. So mm -hmm. all this ties in really kind of cool because I'm like, hey, I know that. And hey, I, I know where that is because I've seen pictures and, and I've in the vicinity so yeah cool well we're gonna <laughs> travel on to our next stop would you like to tell us about it dear sure okay go for it the haunted georgian hotel santa monica california at the end of your route 66 travels be sure to check out the georgian hotel in santa monica california built in 1933 it was designed to be an inmate intimate hideaway i can talk catering <laughs> <laughs> catering to los angeles's high society at the time the hotel was developed, it was nestled in a heavily wooded shoreline at the little-known seaside community of Santa Monica. Owner Judge Harry Ford commissioned Eugene Durfee to construct the posh resort 
in an Art Deco style, opening its doors to the rich and famous in 1933. During Prohibition, the Georgian was home to one of Los Angeles' first speakeasies and soon became the rendezvous point for many up-and-coming Hollywood studio executives and celebrities, including Clark Gable, Carol Lombard, and Carol Lombard, who sought secluded weekends away from the cameras. The oceanfront veranda provided a stage for martinis, jazz, and notorious figures, including Bugsy Siegel and Fatty Arbuckle. The hotel was considered to be one of the most modern facilities of the time, featuring a beauty parlor, bar barbershop, playground, and dining room, in addition to its most popular speakeasy. The primary reason for the hotel's popularity and success was the exclusive secluded location. Prohibition finally ended in December of the same year the hotel opened, and later expansion dramatically occurred in the 50s as Los Angeles began to develop into a major metropolitan city. It was during this decade that the Georgian was sold and refurbished. The property remained a favorite vacation residence for the new era of jet-setting Americans and Europeans in the spring of 2000. A $2 million renovation was completed, which included the addition of numerous elegant amenities to the Georgian's guest rooms, lobby, hallways, and meeting facilities. Today, the old hotel is surrounded by modern office buildings rather than pristine forests, but still continues to attract Hollywood celebrities such as Oliver Stone, Robert De Niro, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And according to legend, it continues to play host to a number of other unearthly guests. Whether they be famous or infamous, and the hotel speakeasy restaurant, both staff and guests have reported a number of strange phenomena over the years. At many times, when the restaurant is completely empty, employees have heard loud sighs, gasps, and have been startled by the disembodied voice who greets them with, good morning. At other times, the sounds of running footsteps are heard throughout the restaurant when no one is there and... and and a number of transparent apparitions have been seen. So perhaps if you stop <laughs> to have a libation at the speakeasy, you'll bump into none other than Robert De Niro, if you're lucky. And if you're not, you might bump into an unearthly presence for which you cannot see. <laughs> at any rate, it should be a fun look around at this vintage hotel, officially recognized by the city of Santa Monica as a historical landmark. See, this is why I, I, I talk about how this should be you know, Route 66 should be restored, mm -hmm. if not completely, at least, you know, called a historic landmark because it's it, it coast to coast. It's got such history. So mm -hmm. this is just one of the last. This is the last stop. <laughs> Dr. Pimple, I should say this because Dr. Pimple's <laughs> office is actually in Santa Monica, I think. Yeah. They call you can <clears throat> see the Route 66 sign begin <laughs> or end or whatever. That's true. You see it on intro. the show all the time. Yeah. You know? And I'm trying to remember who got me hooked on the stupid show in the first place. But, oh, was it you? Guilty as George. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and people look at me like, well, how can you watch that? I don't know. I just can't. I can't watch eye surgery, but I can watch other gross things. <laughs> you can blame YouTube for my uh, obsession with it. <laughs> it's a good show. Watch it. <laughs> so, Jessa, would you like to tell one or you just kind of long for the ride? I'm along for the ride. I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> he never lets me do that. I want to be along for the ride some days. You are always you along, for the, along for the ride. <laughs> I was going to say, well, he makes me not. Let, 
You know, there's proof in all this, right? I know. What was the name of that lovely place that we stayed in Jackson? Bethany's Bethany House. Bethany House. Thank you. Yes. Yes. You were kind of along for that ride. Yeah, I was. But I, I, I actually participated a lot that night but no he like there's nights where i'm not feeling good and and i'm like i don't know if i can do this and i end up trying to do it so i'm here but i'm not here you know you end up playing video games on your phone no i don't or crocheting and crocheting everything else (laughs) and i end up messing up my crochet because yeah i'm here to socialize my eyes are actually not focusing well enough for me to read right now i'm Um, only teasing you so if you hear the sound of snoring it's because we border to death uh, she's got a fuzzy in her lap and it's distracting her. I, I, I do. I have a fuzzy in my lap and she is not distracting me. She's She will keep me awake. Don't worry. Okay. Now that we've broken Tracy and let's continue, shall we? I'll do the next one. Our next stop is the Haunted Rialto Theater in South Pasadena, California. Okay. Longstanding Route 66 icon, the Rialto Theater in South Pasadena, California, closed its doors after 81 years. Shutting out its customers, but probably not its ghosts. The historic theater. I lost my place. Built in 1924. I'm sorry, my my screen jumped there. Okay. The historic theater, built in 1924 in a Spanish Baroque design with Egyptian touches, seated 1,200 people and included 10 dressing rooms, a scenic loft, an orchestra pit, and a deep stage. The decor featured picture tiles, colorful stenciling, and plaster ornaments such as harpies, half woman, half vulture, of course, and mythical gargoyles. On its opening night of October 17, 1925, an organist played its large Wurlitzer organ, and the Rialto Orchestra accompanied the world premiere of the picture What Happened to Jones. Prior to the premiere movie, customers were entertained with vaudeville acts and trapeze artists. Admission was 30 cents. And if only, yeah, that. if only. <laughs> Not anymore. When the Depression started, the theater survived by offering prizes to entice its customers and made it through the hard times. When vaudeville lost popularities in the, popularity in the 1930s, three-act prologues were presented prior to the feature film. It was also during this decade that the theater suffered a backstage fire that temporarily closed its doors. After it reopened, live theater never returned to the stage. Over the years, the theater was sold along with many of its fixtures, including its historic Wurlitzer organ. By the 1960s, the single screen theater was showing more niche movies, including silent films. The theater suffered another fire in 1968, but was restored once again and survived. So two fires still kicking. At that point. After the classic Rocky Horror Picture Show came out in 1975. That's why you're laughing. Okay. (laughs) I was like, it sounds sounds perfect for Rocky. I mean, it's got a full stage, right? Mm -hmm. So after the classic Rocky Horror Picture Show came out in 1975, it started a three-decade run at the old theater, being shown every Saturday night at midnight for years. Before it, too, lost popularity and was then only shown on a monthly basis. In July of 1976, the operations of the theater were taken over by the Landmark Corporation under a 100-year lease of the building. However, soon after they took over, redevelopment in South Pasadena posed the threat of tearing down the legendary movie house. Movie house, sorry. Locals protested, and the Rialto was soon listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1978. 
In the 1970s and 80s, the Rialto began to host some concerts and soon began to run more mainstream movies in the hopes of drawing more customers. But before long, multiplex theaters began, before long, let me try Uh this again, sorry. (laughs) But before long, multiplex theaters began to sprout up all over the area. And in the meantime, the Rialto was continuing to deteriorate. Discussions began in the 1990s to completely renovate the theater to either return it to its former glory or split it up into a multiplex. However, in 2000, Landmark's parent company, Silver Cinemas, declared bankruptcy and there were no funds for renovation. Although one of the finest and least adulterated theaters in the greater Los Angeles area, its carpets were frayed, its paint chipped, and its velvet seats fading, Customers may have remembered the aging movie house with fondness, but they chose to patronize the more modern multiplexes with their large parking lots, comfortable seating, and choices of movies. Though the Rialto Theater survived the death of vaudeville, two fires, and threats of demolition, and conversion to a parking lot, it finally succumbed to low ticket sales and sadly closed on August 19th of 2007. Because it's on the National Register of Historic Places, the building will be safe from demolition. Its future, however, remains unknown. A yet unapproved redevelopment plan is in the works, but as of this writing, the building's future is unknown. During its long history, rumors of the theater being haunted have been consistently circulated. Tales about people having died there, particularly a girl who allegedly slit her wrists in the bathroom before making her way up the balcony and bleeding to death. Another story tells of a man who went insane in the projector booth. In any event, staff and visitors allege that the stalls in the girls' bathroom have been known to start shaking of their own accord. In the theater itself, the apparition of an older man has often been sitting in various seats, as well as walking up and down the balcony stairs. Could this be the man who went insane in the projector booth? Others say that the theater is also haunted by a cat. We've all been there. Mm -hmm. In its early days, the theater's mascot was a cat who roamed the old movie house, brushing up against customers' legs and often walking in front of the screen. According to some tales, the cat continues to move stealthily through the theater and produce an eerie red light when the phantom walked in front of the movie screen. Perhaps it died in one of the fires. Maybe. Sorry. That that would explain (laughs) the ghost part of the cat, Mm -hmm. maybe. Another visitor reported the image of a dark figure gliding down the stage, making his way toward the theater seats before disappearing into the lobby. Other normal paranormal events have also been reported, such as abnormalities in photographs, uneasy feelings people experience in various areas of the theater, especially in the women's restroom, and whispers that are sometimes heard. Here's where I was giggling at the beginning of this. You're talking about the Rialto Theater. I was remembering my mother... Actually, my grandparents' pictures, I have no idea what they are, of my grand-aunt Vashti, a vaudevillian performer in the Rialto Theater. And my Uncle Maury, who was also kind of vaudevillian in his own, with my Aunt Lisa at the Rialto. So, yeah, giggling because, you know, mm-hmm. family. Because I'm like, hey, wait, I know this place. Where are the pictures? I don't know. I haven't seen them since we did the house reformat. That's too bad. Hopefully they'll turn up again. It's a nice slice of history. I, I think it was when we were clearing out Aunt Lisa's house that mom had this pile of stuff that was hers and this gentleman 
picked up the pile and took off with it. And I think those were the pictures that that were Ooh. of Uncle Maury and Aunt Lisa there, and I think some of those of Aunt Vashti or Grand Aunt Vashti, because yeah. Well, I hope they meant something to the guy who took them. No, he just wanted least. to be able to sell them wherever the hell he's going to sell them. That's nice. too bad. Sarcasm, yeah. But mm-hmm. mm-hmm. anyway, it wouldn't surprise me that it's haunted with a history like that. Something's got to be going on there. So. Probably my aunt Vashti going to visit because she could. Well, sure, why not? Well, she she's the one who who had everyone over for dinner, did her makeup, had every, you know cooked the meal, got everyone set up, everyone ate, and then she sent them home, fixed your makeup at the end, sat down in the chair, and passed away. Because well, she was ready to go. Then she was ready to go. Okay, she everyone over. I've had heard all the family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, I just think it's. It, People know when they're going to go. My mother, like I said, my mother passed away. She called everybody in her phone book the day before and said goodbye. I didn't know what the hell she was talking about because her speech was in stroke. I didn't understand her. I feel bad now, but hindsight and all that. But yep. didn't know. I was a, just a kid. Yeah. So, but yeah, we come to find out from everybody that she called everybody. I mean, people she hadn't talked to in years. Mm-hmm. They were still in her phone book. Oh, yeah. She had her little, little blue phone book. You still got the clicker with you? Yes. <laughs> we I, might need I it. I can't reach it, though. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Would you like I to do the next not... one, Tracy? Sure. Yes, it's be another long one, right? Is it? Probably. <laughs> oh, man, bridge. yeah, Tracy. Are Colorado you sure you Street Bridge in Pasadena, California. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> the majestic 1913 Colorado Street Bridge in Pasadena, California. Not only wowed early travelers crossing the causeway, but soon took a more sinister, sinister note and people began leaping from the 150-foot bridge to their death. Within a decade of its construction, locals have begun to call it the Suicide Bridge. And as you can imagine, legends began to abound that the bridge was haunted by these unfortunate souls. The beautiful concrete bridge spans 1,467 feet across the Arroyo Seco, a deeply cut canyon linking San Gabriel Mountains to Los Angeles River and containing the intermittent Arroyo Seco stream for which it's named. The bridge is often incorrectly referred to as the Arroyo Seco Bridge. Not to be confused with Rancho Seco, yes. That's um, not what I was laughing about. <laughs> it's a river, but it's concrete encased. It's a yeah. river, but it's... that. Oh, that's what kept going through my head, because it's a river, but it's concrete encased. It's a river, but it's not a river. It's, it's a river, river, but it's, it's not, not a river. river. <laughs> that's what was going through my head, sorry. In Pasadena's early days, before historic Colorado Street Bridge was built, Crossing the Arroyo Seco was a extremely difficult tax, task. Horses and wagons descended the steep eastern slope, crossed the stream over a small bridge, then climbed up the west bank through Eagle Rock Pass. The bridge was designed and built by the J.A.L. Waddell, Waddell firm of Kansas City, Missouri, and named Colorado Street, now called Colorado Boulevard, which was a major east-west thoroughfare through Pasadena, known as the Bow Art, yeah, Bow Bow Art Arts Arches. Arches yeah. Ornate lamp posts and railings, the initial design proved difficult due to finding solid footing on their royal bed. However, when engineer John Drake Morceau, Mercurio, Mercurio, sorry. Mercero. Mercero? I think it's Mercero. Mercero. Yeah. yeah. I'm awake, I swear. Conceived the idea of curving the bridge, he created a work of art. The first tragedy on the bridge occurred before construction was even complete. Allegedly, one of the bridge workers toppled over the side and plunged headfirst into a vat of wet concrete. His co-workers assumed he would not be saved in time, or so couldn't be saved in time, 
and left his body in a quick drying cement. This is the only time, this is only one of the many souls said to haunt the suicide bridge. The first suicide occurred on November 16, 1919, was followed by a number of others, especially during the Great Depression. Over the years, it's estimated that more than 100 people took their lives leaping off the 150-foot bridge into the Royal Willow. One of the more notable suicides was a despondent mother threw her baby over the railing in May 1st, 1937. Then she followed her into the depths of the canyon. Through the, though the mother died, the child miraculously survived. Evidently that her mother had inadvertently tossed her into some nearby trees where she was later recovered from the thick branches. By the 1980s, the historic bridge had fallen into great disrespair as chunks of concrete began to fall from its ornate railings and arches. After the Loma Prieta earthquake near Oakland in 89, the bridge was closed as a precautionary measure. Eventually, federal, state, and local funds provided some $27 million in renovation costs, and the bridge was reopened in 1993, complete with its original detail, plus suicide prevention rail. <clears throat> Though the number of suicides throughout the years has decreased, the bridge continues to retain its nickname and its ghostly legends. According to the tales, a number of spirits are said to wander the bridge itself, as well as the arroyo below. Others have heard unexplained cries coming from the canyon. <clears throat> Pardon. One report tells of a spectral man that's often seen wandering the bridge who wears wire-rimmed glasses. Screen jump, sorry. Others have heard unexplained cries coming from the canyon. One report tells of a spectral man that's often seen wandering the bridge. Yep, I got one again, sorry. See? <coughs> it jumped. Other people have claimed to see a woman in a long flowing robe who stands atop one of the parapets before finishing as she throws herself off the side. <coughs> Pardon me. Okay, there, Tracy. <coughs> Breathing is fun and fundamental. In the arroyo below, phantom forms have been seen walking over the riverbed. A number of unexplicable sounds are often heard, and the atmosphere is often described as thick. The Colorado Street Bridge was part of Route 66 until 1940, when the Arroyo Seco Parkway opened. <coughs> Today, the bridge has received a civil engineering landmark designation and is listed as a National Register of Historic Places. The Mother Road icon was the center of tragic news late again in late October 2015, when noted actor, model, and musician Sam Sarpong took his own life jumping off the bridge. Hmm. <coughs> Pardon me. I'm looking at a picture of the bridge. It is actually quite pretty. Yes, it We've is. Done this the arches in the curve. Mm -hmm. yep. They talked about the mother throwing the kid ending up in the tree. I remember all of that. Mm -hmm. Oops, sorry. I think we did talk about it at some point. But was it I'm on the podcast or was it prep for it? No, no, we it did. It was on the podcast. We, we talked the, about it before, I think. We talked about the bridge. We were doing, oh, Haunted Bridges. We were doing Haunted, the Haunted Bridges. Haunted Bridges episode, yeah. It was, I think it came up with one of the haunted bridges. We've done so many at this point, it's hard to keep it's track. It's hard to keep track if we do too much, you know. Did you? So while Tracy's hacking and coughing up along, I think it's time we take a quick break. The processing of commercial information is complete. Back to the show. So we're leaving California and we're driving into Arizona now at this point. Arizona. Yep. The haunted Oatman Hotel, Arizona. In this historic town of Oatman, Arizona sits the haunted Oatman Hotel. Oatman was first established as a tent city in the early 1900s. And the historic hotel called the Drulin Hotel was built in 1902. The eight-room hotel did a brisk business to area miners 
especially after two miners struck a rich vein that would end up being a $10 million gold fine in 1915. Before that time, the town had been little more than a mining camp. The rich gold discovery brought hundreds of new settlers, and within one year's time, Oatman had grown to more than 3,500 residents. Oatman suffered three major fires that almost destroyed the town in just a few short years. However, the town was rebuilt, and the old hotel was repaired in 1920, continuing to host its many guests. However, both the population and the mining boom were short-lived. The largest mining company, United Eastern Mines, shut down its operations in 1924, and the town almost died. But with the advent, advent of Route 66, the old town and the hotel hung on, catering to the many travelers along the new highway. According to the hotel, on March 29, 1939, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard spent their wedding night there after having been married in Kingman, Arizona. Remembering this memorable night, the couple often returned to the hotel for the peace and solitude it afforded them. Clark was known to spend many a night playing poker with some miners. Sadly, Carol Lombard was killed in a plane crash in January 1942. Though devastated, Clark continued with his life and career and later married again. Over the years, the old hotel carried several names but was changed to the Oatman Hotel in the 1960s when Route 66 was replaced with the interstate. Oatman again suffered a devastating blow and dwindled to a few gift shops and restaurants. Today, only about 100 people live in Oatman year-round. Oatman Hotel is one of the biggest attractions of the small village as the word of its mischief, mischievous ghost has spread far and wide. The first and foremost ghosts are Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, who evidently had so many fine memories of the old hotel that they simply refused to leave. Continuing to celebrate, guests and staff have often heard the pair whispering and laughing from the room when it is empty. According to, the, to one report, when a professional photographer took a picture of the empty room... Okay, that's not distracting. <laughs> That's the screen jumps. Sorry. <laughs> Took a picture of the empty room. The ghostly figure of a man appeared on the developed print. Clark and Carol are not alone, as other spirits reportedly haunt the old hotel. The second floor houses a theater room <laughs> museum where distinct outlines of sleeping bodies have been found in the dust on the beds. Upon closer inspection, none of the surrounding areas appear to be disturbed. Staff suspects that the sleeping spirit is a former chambermaid who often who has often been spotted in the room. And she's apparently not doing her job if she's asleep. <laughs> Perhaps that's a room she stayed in. They often housed people Could in be. upper floors. Could be. So, um, I lost my place. But she's Another asleep. She's not room. working. Another guest room is also haunted <laughs> by, the, by an Irish miner who once lived there. Distraught because his family died when on their way to America, he had a habit of heavy drinking. One night he got carried away with the drinking and passed out behind the hotel. He never woke up. It is said that he was, that he has haunted his old room in the hotel ever since. The staff report refers to this spirit as Odie, who was often heard playing his bagpipes around the hotel. Other common pranks include opening the window in his former room and pulling the covers off the bed. Oh, that's going to be fun. There have also been reports of the room being very cold amidst a hot desert day. Okay. 
There we go. That does not sound pleasant to me. No. But it makes sense for the haunting. Downstairs in the saloon, it appears that there are several playful spirits at work here who have been said to lift money off the bar and raise glasses into the air. Other strange phenomena include lights turning on and off, seemingly by themselves, the sound of eerie voices, toilets that flush in empty bathrooms, and footprints that appear from nowhere on recently cleaned floors. That's got to annoy the janitor. <laughs> that would annoy, them, annoy me, I know, if I was a cleaning person. Lucky for the Oatman Hotel, it seems as if their bevy of unusual guests are the playful, friendly type and don't make a habit of scaring away their guests. The Oatman Hotel is listed on the National Register of Historic Buildings. The hotel is filled with memorabilia of the past, and the gable lumbar room has been refurbished to the period that they were there. Today, the Oatman Hotel no longer provides accommodations for guests, but still serves as a museum, restaurant, gift shop, and more. But there's a lot of pictures in there of Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. Especially since they kept going back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well known. It's like that old saying about going to that particular hotel and sleeping in the bed Washington slept in. Yep. Or Lincoln, you know, stuff like that. Oh, was my stuff. Sorry. So I'll go ahead and hit the next one. This is the ghosts of the Weatherford Hotel in Flagstaff, Arizona. We finally got there. Ad tried to jump the gun earlier and, and <laughs> no, get us I did there, not. but it skipped. Every time one of you messes with the screen, it goes to someplace else on mine. That's not distracting at all, dear. No, not a bit. That might be why all of you are having problems. Could be. Could be. We'll get in sync yet. So anyway, as I said, this is the ghost of the Weatherford uh, Hotel, Flagstaff, Arizona. When Arizona was just a territory and vigilantes ruled the dusty streets and trails in road John W. Weatherford to Flagstaff, Arizona. Having a grand vision for Flagstaff, Weatherford soon began to build what would become known as the finest hotels in the West. Opening on New Year's Day 1900, the luxurious hotel would attract such visitors as newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst, former President Theodore Roosevelt, Old West author Zane Gray, and lawman Wyatt Earp. After his luxury hotel was complete, John Weatherford built the Majestic Opera House, which opened in 1911. When it burned down in 1915, Weatherford was not to be deterred and rebuilt his theater, this time calling it the Orpheum, which continues to stand today. In the early part of the 20th century, watercolor artist Thomas Moran spent many nights at the Weatherford Hotel, while he completed his sketches of Western landscapes. These works of art were partially responsible for moving Congress to preserve such places as the Grand Canyon and Yellowstone as national parks. Over the years, this historic building served a number of purposes, including Flagstaff's first, first telephone exchange company, excuse me, a number of restaurants, a theater, a radio station, and a billiard hall. Today has been fully restored and again caters to Flagstaff travelers. Along with its rich history, the Hotel Weatherford is also said to be calling home to a couple of resident ghosts. The Zane Gray Ballroom, complete with its stained glass windows and antique Brunswick bar from Tombstone, is the site where at least one of Weatherford's ghosts is said to most often appear. In this beautiful ballroom, the ghostly woman has often been spied floating across the room. On other occasions, occasions, I'm sorry, my... Uh, my dentures are kind of loose, I think, tonight. 
on another on other occasions, I'll get it out yet, <laughs> she said to dart from one side of the room to the other. Other phenomena in the ballroom include the light over the pool table that seemingly always of its seemingly sways of its own accord. It's getting late, folks. Sorry about that. And the sounds of whispers and voices coming from an otherwise empty bar. Apparently, there are the ghosts of a long-ago bride and groom who also haunt the hotel. According to legend, the honeymoon couple was murdered in room 54 of the hotel back in the 1930s. On at least one occasion, an employee who was staying in the hotel awoke in the middle of the night to find a bride and groom sitting at the foot of the bed. Today, the room has been turned into a storage closet, but that hasn't stopped the ghostly pair, as guests have often reported seeing the couple enter the room. Staff often report hearing their names being called out by an unseen spirit while on the fourth floor, as well as feeling a presence standing behind them. While at the historic Hotel Weatherford, you may very well see a ghost, but if not, you're sure to enjoy the authentic Old West Hotel, old-fashioned rooms, and delightful lounges. I hope I got all that out so it's understandable. I apologize for the stuttering and the and the, uh, and the slurring of words, but it is getting kind of late here at Casa de Us. Casa de Us. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna hit one more story, I think, and probably call it a night after this. Probably. And yeah, folks, you're getting the whole unedited thing. I don't edit for anything, so you're you're hearing it as it happens, with certain exceptions. Before you even say anything, you were responsible for one of those edits earlier. So, how many have you been responsible for? Too? Let's not talk about that. Anyway, uh, hot kettle, kettle black. Next, that's okay. racist. <laughs> <laughs> I had nothing. To just do. kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> but, <coughs> I love you you broke her again. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. She was discriminating against kettles <laughs> and pots. Anywho, the history and haunting of the Navajo of the Navajo County, Arizona courthouse. Damn. Okay, before the Navajo County, Arizona. That makes no sense because there should be something in there. Before, before Navajo, before County, Navajo Arizona County, Arizona was formed, it was first made a part of the Yavapai County on November 8th, 1864. The Yavapai County was so large, it was subsequently divided into six different counties in February 24 of 1879, from which the Apache County was created, encompassing almost 21,000 square miles. The newly created Apache County was was mostly known as uh, sorry mostly unknown and uninhabited. As Texas cattlemen began to move in, Apache and Navajo Indians raided the settlements. To further complicate matters in this large section of the old West Frontier, Apache County was soon torn by strange by, by range wars between the newly settled Texas cattlemen and the already established Mexican and Indian sheepmen. Then again, on March 21st, 1865, Apache County was split into Navajo County. The bill to create a new county was authored by Will C. Barnes, created a, uh, a two-month fight within the ter territorial legislature, held up by filibuster, and it finally passed within a few moments of, of the adjournment of the last day of session. The newly created Navajo County made by Holbrook, sorry, made Holbrook, founded in 1881, its seat it's county seat, sorry. <coughs> In the beginning, <coughs> dang it, the county was supposed was supported by lumber. Really, I can do this. 
lumbering, farming, railroading, ranching, and trade with the Indians. It was also a rugged stretch of land called uh, that called home mostly a, a crusty bunch of old men. At its center, Holbrook had taken on all the vices of the typical Wild West town, complete with a saloon called the Bucket of Blood. Law and order were non-existent, gambling was popular, and painted ladies far outnumbered proper women. There was obviously a need for law enforcement in Navajo County, and Holbrook soon bought, uh, brought in a sheriff commodore, Perry Owens, to settle down the lawless elements. Owens, already the sheriff of Apache, of Apache County, had gained a reputation for cleaning up the territory, so much so that he was called St. George with a six-shooter. When Navajo County was formed, Owens was appointed its first sheriff, a position he held until Frank Wadden was elected to his post in 1896. In 1898, the county elected a few, uh, erected a new courthouse that would become the scene of a number of notorious trials over the years. The basement of the courthouse housed jail cells, manufactured as complete units in the St. Louis, Missouri, and shipped to Holbrook on railroad flat cars. The small dark cells were very effective throughout the years, and no one ever escaped from them. Sounds like a Sears Roebuck catalog. Mm -hmm. Did you say Sears and Roebuck? Yes. Okay, I couldn't. I, my hearing is bad. Sorry. Yep, because the catalog used to be able to buy a house on a train you, you and could, a wagon train. Yep. Yeah, you could buy almost, you could buy appliances, you could buy anything. The old school washer and dryer with the ringer in it. Or the yep. washer Wives. <laughs> no. Almost. Actually, you almost could. Almost. Yeah. But anywho. My great, one, I think my great grandmother was a mail order bride, though, so I don't know how that worked, but... That's a different cow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it is a thing. Go ahead, the, sorry. Though the court would continue to dispense justice at this location for the next 78 years, the most famous would always continue to be the first and only man ever hanged in Navajo County. In November 1899, the new courthouse jail was holding one of its most notable prisoners, a murderer named George Smiley. Convicted of having killed a railroad section foreman named McSweeney, Smiley was scheduled to, sank, to hang on December 8th, 1899. At this time, Arizona required, or sorry, Arizona law required that the county sheriff send invitations of executions to other Arizona sheriffs, as well as certain territorial officials. However, the legislature did not provide a form or the required invitation or any guidelines for the format. Goaded by his friends, Watchman decided to issue a novel invitation, having it professionally printed on gilt bordered paper. However, when a reporter got a hold of the invitation, he wired it to the Associated Press. Before long, the invitation was printed in newspapers all over the nation and even appeared in the London Times. The Berlin Tagblatt Tag, Tag and Paris Biarge. President McKinley then wired Arizona Governor Nathan Oaks Murphy, who, who stayed the execution for 30 days and issued a reprimand to Waltron. Though Sheriff Watchman was seemingly unfazed, starting, stating to a friend, well, I got a hell of a lot of notoriety anyway. The incident wrinkled him. Determined to make a point and have the last word, he prepared a second printed invitation, this time more mournful than the first and slightly sarcastic. It too was professionally printed, though this time the invitation was edged in black. He then waited to mail out the second invitation until he was sure it would not be received by the governor or other officials until after the execution had been performed. It read, Revised Statutes of, Cal of Arizona, Penal Code, Title X, 
Section 1849, page 807, makes it obligatory on sheriff to issue invitations of executions form, unfortunately, not prescribed. Holbrook, Arizona, January 7th, 1900. With feelings of profound sorrow and regret, I hereby write... I hereby invite you to attend and witness the private, decent, and humane execution of a human being named Doris Miley, crime murder. I said Doris Miley will be, uh, then the, the said George Smiley will be executed January 8th, 1900 at 2 o'clock p.m. You're expected to deport yourself in a respectful manner and any flippant or unseemly language or conduct on your part will not be allowed. Conduct on anyone's part, be it bordering on ribaldry or tending to, to the mar the solemnity. Mm-hmm. Those old words are hard to say, huh? Solemnity. <laughs> solemnity. Yes. Will not be tolerated. F. J. Waltron, Sheriff Navajo County. I would suggest that a committee con uh, consisting of Governor Murphy, editors Dunbar, Randolph, and Hull wait on our next legislature to have a form of invitation of. Ex of to executions embodied in our laws. In any event, George Smiley was finally hanged on January 8th, 1900. The historic building continued to serve as Navajo County Public up until 1976, when a new governmental center was established south of Holbrook. In 1978, the Richardsonian Romanesque Courthouse was added to the National Register of, public, of Historic Places. Today, the historic building is home to Holbrook Chamber of Commerce, a visitor center, and Navajo County Historical Museum. It's also home to a couple of resident ghosts. The most prominent spirit lurking about the historic building is none other than George Smiley himself, the one and only man ever hanged at the courthouse. After keeping his date with the noose in 1900, he's been seen wandering around the building and pacing up and down the stairs. The Historical Society uh, staff also blame this old ghost on doors seemingly closing of their own, strange noises heard throughout the building, and objects that are mysteriously moved. Another entity seen looking out the windows is a woman the staff identifies as a former prisoner named Mary. According to legend, Mary died inside one of the old jail cells while looking out a window, longing for her freedom. Today, the historic courthouse could be the first stop of Holbrook visitors as a friendly staff will gladly provide maps, directions, and information for the area. The museum provides information for the Navajo County's past, which includes recent or ancient pottery, Native American art displays, artifacts of Holbrook's early pioneer and businesses, and a tour through the old county jail. During the summer months, Native American dancers offer free performances on weekday evenings at the courthouse. So we've parked the car, found our hotel for the night, and we're going to call this road trip ended for now. But fear not, folks. We're going to get back on the road and go more. We're going to go further down Route 66. In two weeks. Yeah. Well, yeah, in about episode. two weeks or so. <laughs> we are going to be dark next week and the week after, because the week after is Thanksgiving. Oh, Thanksgiving! And since we normally, since there's that too, and since we normally record on Thursdays, which is Thanksgiving, we won't be recording. So, look for us three weeks from today. Yay! Until then. Bye, folks. It's all we were all We hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs> Bye, folks. As you said, stay spooky and cue the, the gremlin. gremlin.
What in the Podcast is a part of the What in the Podcast network and is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other great podcast formats. You can find us on Facebook at the What in the Podcast Facebook group. If you have a great story idea or have a personal paranormal event that you want to share with us, email us at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com with your story, or you can leave us a voice message by clicking the link in the episode description. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to leave us a review and rate us five stars. It doesn't seem like much, but it helps us more than you can imagine. What in the Podcast is also made possible thanks to our sponsors and listeners like you. Thanks for listening.